Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Hello, everybody, and welcome. You are listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call, broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavallero Studios. We're doing great today. It's Luke. It's Ronnie. It's Dallas. It's Jason. We're all here. How are we feeling, everybody? Gotta say, we're feeling pretty good today. Feeling great. I absolutely agree. fantastic. I agree. The boys are absolutely buzzing today. The boys <laughs> are buzzing today. So excited to hop right into things. We, we do have definitely a really great day, and it's not just myself, it's not just Ronnie, it's not just Dallas, it's not just Jason. Jason, we have a special guest here today, here live in studio. Uh, so Dallas, if you just want to take it away, start it off, go of ahead. Of course, of course. So we at the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call are very, very excited to be joined by a very special guest to talk about a very special event. Today we're joined by our very own Lawrence Herbert School of Commun- Communications uh, Professor of Journalism, Scott Brinton. And we're here to talk about the 10th edition of Hofstra's very own pre- presidential symposium series, where we're tackling local coverage of the climate crisis, specifically through the Long Island Advocate. Professor Brinton, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So just to get right in it, one of the main things we talk about is local coverage of cl- the climate crisis, where it doesn't really seem to be that local. We talk about it more on a national level. Um, so what are the benefits? perspective of local coverage versus national or even international coverage when it comes to talking about climate change? Well, I mean, we live on an island here on Long Island, um, and islands are going to be most affected by the climate crisis. Um, It's only natural. The seas are rising because of melting uh, ice sheets um, with the warmer climate. Um, So that's a big problem. We also know that hurricanes, and we're in hurricane season right now, are going to grow stronger Uh, Not necessarily more frequent, but definitely stronger. So when we look at climate, it's a global problem, but we have to look at it on a local level. Everybody's going to be affected differently, and it's important for people to understand how they're going to be affected. So you brought up hurricanes, and we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Sandy this October. Uh, You know, many areas, especially not too far in our middle Atlantic region, were affected, uh, especially New York. Personally, I was too young to remember a lot of what was happening during the time. But from your perspective, do you feel as though uh, through the way weather phenomena and natural disasters are covered has changed in the last decade? I think that people have become more aware of this as a potential problem. I mean, I've been covering climate change and climate, the climate crisis, uh, and now we refer to it as a climate crisis. So 10 years ago, we were more thinking of it as a climate change. That would, that would sort of suggest something gradual that would happen over the next century. I think that people are beginning to realize that it's a crisis because it's much more in our faces than we thought. Um, I and mean, we've seen that not only with Superstorm Sandy, uh, which you know, pummeled Long Island, including my own house, uh, live fairly close to the water, but not next to the water. And and yet our own house was, about a third of it was destroyed. So um, people are starting to to kind of realize that this is an immediate crisis. We're seeing that with hurricanes in the Caribbean. Uh, We're seeing that what's happening with Puerto Rico right now. 
um, what happened to Puerto Rico five years ago, uh, where you know stronger hurricanes can really translate to many more deaths and certainly a great deal more devastation in, into the billions of dollars. So you mentioned a lot in terms of how a suicide Sandy or Hurricane Sandy affected people. I know for myself, my family probably lost power for what, I'd say two weeks or so. I mean, I know, especially for me living by uh, a coastal area being in Huntington Bay on the north hand side uh, definitely had more of an impact for us. Uh, but certainly there's other areas that have been impacted more, especially over the years. I know if you look out on the East End in the Hamptons, a lot of them still building a lot of those houses on stilts to be accommodating for. So how do we still see Hurricane Sandy be an impact on Long Island even after all these years? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, first there's the the psychological effect. Um, I know that for folks who got, including myself, for who got hammered by the storm, um, there is this lingering sense that, you know, it's not going away. Every time you you turn on the TV and you hear about hear about a potential hurricane coming your way, it, there's a certain anxiety level that starts to rise uh, because, it, you know, it was a devastating storm and a lot of people lost their houses. I mean. We lost a third of our house, and it was it was it affected us pretty badly. Um, but other people, I know people who lost their entire house um, that that it just had to be taken down, ripped down, um, and you know there was for many years problems with insurance payments, so people had to struggle legally. Um, and then yeah, there are certain areas which are really low lying that were particularly hard hit, uh, Hamptons. Uh, yes, they that's that's definitely a problem out there. A lot of the folks there are rebuilding with the future in mind, uh, and so they're you know they're putting their houses up on stilts. That's a good thing. Um, there are a lot of places across Long Island where people would like to do that, but don't necessarily have the funds to do that. Um, and there are places where you know people just kind of abandoned their homes and and left uh, because they didn't really have any choice. They they were underwater with their mortgages and their houses had been underwater, so they decided just get up and leave. So yeah, and there are still some people who are still rebuilding 10 years later. Well, if you are just joining us now, my name is Ronnie, and you are tuned in to the Thursday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call. Today, we are joined by Professor Scott Brinton of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication, and we are talking about the third day of the Presidential Symposium series. Well, Professor, with the recent news of Hurricane Fiona and its unforetold damage to Puerto Rico, have there been any efforts by the Long Island Advocate to help the affected areas or raise awareness on how to help? Well, we just published a, a, a very important piece by Professor Yvonne Cardona. He is a professor here at the Herbert School. He uh, teaches public relations, and he um, is from Puerto Rico. Now, he left Puerto Rico five years ago after the last hurricane, Hurricane Maria, uh, really devastated the island and left him no choice but to leave. Um, and You've seen in Puerto Rico, uh, according to Yvonne's piece, uh, roughly half the population has left the island uh, and come to the mainland um, in order to to just escape the economic devastation that they faced there. Um, so that's, I feel like, an important piece. I would encourage everybody to read it. We're definitely looking into right now, we'd like to know what kind of fundraisers there might be out there here on Long Island so we can cover them. Um, we're looking at, there's significant uh, populations, popu Puerto Rican populations in places like Brentwood, Hempstead. We're definitely looking into these areas to, to find out what's going on in these communities and to see if we can be of help. Uh, last semester, you know, when the whole horrible situation in, 
Ukraine broke out, uh, we, we held a series of fundraisers uh, here, um, and we supported other fundraisers through our coverage. So we'd like to do something similar to Puerto Rico, but we'd like to partner with um, either organizations or individuals within communities the way we did last semester. Oh, thank you. So pulling from moving from a more like international or national coverage to talk about more what's happening locally with our own presidential symposium. Sure. Could you give our listeners a bit of a rundown on how the symposium operates, what you guys are really going to focus on and talk about and maybe talk about what's the most challenging part of what you do, whether it be um, focusing on local coverage or doing events like this? Yeah. So our symposium is today, 430 at the Guthrie Theater. So I'd encourage everybody to come. Um, that's first. Um, it's We're going to be looking at how the Long Island Advocate covers the environment, which has been a big part of our coverage from the very beginning. Um, we're looking at all of the issues that might affect uh, Long Island, particularly the coastal communities that are most affected by climate change. Uh, we're bringing in a couple of local advocates and activists who um, you know, are really experts in this field. Rob Weltner from Freeport Splash, which is an environmental organization that really does a lot of cleanups across the South Shore. We're bringing in Adrian Esposito. She is executive director of an organization called Citizens Campaign for the Environment. They cover all a whole myriad of environmental issues. And really, the advocate, you know, climate change has been a huge focus of ours. Uh, but we look at all types of issues, and there are many environmental issues here on Long Island, uh, whether it's uh, the quality of our water, the quality of our air, um, you know, industrial pollution. You know, we've looked at all of these. Um, we've done some major coverage. Um, Madeline Armstrong, who's one of our editors, she's an, our environmental editor. She's going to be one of the speakers today. She's done some really major uh, coverage of, of a lake out in Suffolk County, which is basically at this point a dead lake because of um, nitrogen runoff from fertilizers and so forth, uh, Lake Agawam uh, out in Southampton. So, you know, we're going to be looking at a whole bunch of issues today. There's a lot of issues that you just brought up that are happening in the local area, and I was curious... Uh, what does the advocate do just to improve general awareness about this impact and, and uh, what it means to a lot of the people that are affected by it? Yeah. So, I mean, what we're doing is looking at the science. So we take a science-based approach. We want to we take a look at it and see, okay, and explain to people systems. So science journalism is all about explaining systems to people, and that's really our goal to to first explain the system, because once people understand how a climate system works, um, then they start to understand, okay, how am I affecting that system? And each individual, all of us, have an effect on, on the climate system. We have an effect on the water system. We have an effect on the air systems. And we can each play a part in helping to improve it. So that's really our goal, to help first understand the system itself and then how people affect it and then how the, the, the incremental changes or the big changes that you could make in your life to help improve the environment. And going back in terms of any journalism aspects and things like that, what do you think is necessarily your hardest aspect in terms of reporting on the climate or what you find are the most challenging aspects for it? Definitely in our country, um, and this is a, a huge problem, in our country, the climate crisis has become politicized. It has been for years. I mean, I, I see some of that diminishing. Um, I think the people on both sides of the political aisle are starting to realize that this is a problem. Uh, but for so many years, and we're talking about decades, um, 
I've been covering it 20 years. The the politicization of 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 the climate crisis goes back, you know, much longer than that, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, you know, it was first recognized by our federal government under the Johnson administration during the 60s as a potential threat. Um, and for years, nobody did anything about it, in part because of denial, uh, but also politics. So, you know, there's a lot of big money interests. Um, oil, natural gas, coal industries have a big stake in making sure that people are confused and that there, there's doubt sowed um, with regard to the climate crisis. Um, or there's the sense uh, that they try to create that this is simply a natural phenomenon. But if you look at the science, you realize that this is not natural the way the planet is warming right now. Uh, there are natural phenomena which lead to warming. We're in a natural warming cycle that's been happening for thousands of years now. But right now it's called climate forcing. So we're forcing the climate beyond its natural bounds. And that's the biggest problem. So that's helping people understand that what is happening, yes, is in part a natural phenomenon, but we are forcing the planet outside of its natural bounds. It's a hard concept to understand on a lot of levels but particularly when there's mass confusion caused by very moneyed interests. And so, Professor, is there anything else that we didn't get a chance to discuss or that you would like to mention about either yourself or the, uh, the, you know, the research or how our listeners can learn more? Yeah, so I would say keep, keep reading the Long Island Advocate, longislandadvocate.com. Uh, we have we regularly cover the environment. Madeline Armstrong, again, she's our environmental editor, and she does a fantastic job. She's very committed to the work. Um, she's won now three uh, major uh, environmental reporting awards at the professional level uh, from the Press Club of Long Island, um, which is not easy to do because she's competing against Newsday and other major publications. Um, and she's, re so I mean, I, I mentioned that simply to say the quality of the work is there, um, uh, even at the student level. Uh, and by the way, we don't really think of at the Long Island Advocate uh, as, uh, you know, our reporters as students. We think of them as reporters. And I think that, you know, when you go out and you win awards like that, it shows the level of work is definitely at a professional level. So I would encourage people to read the Long Island Advocate, longislandadvocate.com. Once again, everybody, that was Professor of Journalism Scott Brinton at Hofstra University here to speak with us about the Presidential Symposium today. If you are listening and would like to learn more, please join us for the third day of the Presidential Symposium series at 4.30 p.m. in the Guthard Theater at Hofstra University. Once again, Professor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me, everybody. A.m. for some more Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. You're listening to Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call on 88.7 FM WRHU. So, we have a very exciting package today. I was fortunate enough last weekend to go into Manhattan on Mulberry Street for the San Gennaro Festival. It was an absolute ball. Some of the most fun I've had in my time with WRHU. Actually, a 12-and-a-half-minute package. Got to talk to a lot of the different people in the community, and I'm very excited for everyone to listen. I think you'll be able to feel some of that infectious energy that is present at the festival.
When thinking of Manhattan, there are many places and images that come to mind. Central Park, Times Square, the Met, and so many more. One that comes to my mind almost immediately is Little Italy. The iconic spot found on Mulberry Street has been a pilgrimage for Italians and tourists alike for over 100 years. Perhaps what this area is known best for is the annual San Gennaro Festival. This year marks the 96th San Gennaro Festival, which runs from September 15th to the 25th. I was lucky enough to attend on Saturday the 17th. The people, food, and atmosphere are truly one of a kind, and it's no wonder why this is considered one of New York City's best traditions. Without further ado, let's go to Mulberry Street and see what all the excitement is about. Welcome to Mulberry Street in Little Italy. I'm Jason White here at the San Gennaro Festival. All over the streets, there's vendors, t-shirts, food, and music. So much is happening in just a couple blocks of space. Here with singer Jimmy Bono Ganey. Jimmy, what are you doing today at the San Gennaro Festival? Uh, just keeping up the old world traditions and uh, in the area of music. Uh, in addition to the Italian food that people all come down here and enjoy, the music is a big part of it also. So um, that's my part. <laughs> is there any go-to songs that you have to sing while you're here? Oh yeah, absolutely. Cello Luna Mezzamati is a uh, crowd favorite and O Solo Mio and of course that's Amore which it's a funny song. It's an, I guess you could say an Italian-American song because it, it was written here in the United States, not in Italy, and yet it has outsold every Italian composition ever written, if you can imagine that. The festival also has an honorary Grand Marshal, and on Saturday it was Michael J. Massimino, an Italian-American from Long Island with Sicilian roots. Massimino spent over 60 hours in space as a NASA astronaut. In honor of his Italian heritage, he even brought Galileo's telescope on one of his voyages. For some, this festival is a part of their livelihood and brings in tons of business. Hundreds of streetgoers flock to their stands and shops every day of the festival. Here with Ernest Lapori. Ernest, can you tell me a little bit about your business? My family business, Ferrara Bakery, 195 Grand Street. We've been serving Neapolitan and Italian Southern desserts for more than 130 years. Is there any dish you would recommend that a patron for their first time gets when they come here? Our cannoli, which has been turned by Phil Rizzuto, holy cannoli, and we had trademarked it. Our sfogliatella, which is very Neapolitan, and our gelato. Gelato is low fat, low sugar, high protein. The festival's been going on for many years. What would you say it means to your business in particular? We love it. It's a great Italian street festival. So if you walk around and see, you'll find fried calamari, fried pizza, rice balls, 
sausage and peppers, brujol, great Neapolitan street food, like it would be a mercato, and then you finish with great pastry. Here with Vincenzo Petuto. Vincenzo, can you tell me a little bit about your business? Our business is we sell uh, sausage, peppers, onions, cheesesteaks, braccioli, chicken kebabs, and some other different ethnic foods, depending upon who comes. Uh, we used to sell gabuzel, which the sheep said, but there isn't that big of a demand for it. My father got off of the Ellis Island in 1919. Matter of fact, our trailer is called the Regina d'Italia in honor of the ship that brought my father here. And then my father met a fellow and uh, who directed him into getting into foodstuffs. And he did that. And our family's been in it, well, since at least 1938. And for your business, what does this festival mean with just the revenue that it brings in? It helps us support and put our children. You see, we have all our children and grandchildren working. We file all our taxes and stuff and pays for their college. For some, they've only just recently started attending the festival. Here with Abe Gupta, is this your first time at the San Gennaro Festival? Yeah, it is. What do you think so far? I honestly love it. There's like so much, uh, so much going on. I feel like it's when I first walked in, it was just like everything was like, wow. So everything just popped out, you know. What brought you here today? Clint and we ended up going with this just because a uh, big fan of gelato and pizza. So we're like, let's check this out. What's your favorite part of the festival so far? I would say the parade. Uh, I think the floats were really cool to see. And uh, the live music was great, too. Here with Stacy Colby. Stacy, why are you at the San Gennaro Festival today? Oh, I came with my best friend. It's actually become a tradition, awesome place to be. And I get to experience all new Italian foods. Irish background. <laughs> How long have you been going to the festival for? Uh, actually, this is only the second year. And was last year your first year attending? Yes, it was. So what's your favorite part of the festival? <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, it may be the uh, Ferris wheel. <laughs> Big fan of the Ferris wheel. Any favorite food at the festival? We did do the rice ball stuff. Very much eyeing this uh, Italian sausage, especially with all that bread being cut. Love the garbage can look too, so we'll see. Joining me now is... Maria Vilela Coimbra Pinto. What brings you to the San Gennaro Festival today? Um, I'm here with my boyfriend and his loved ones and our friends. And I've been last year with my mom too. What's your favorite part of the festival? Well, I'm, I'm half Italian, um, I'm from Brazil, and what I like about it is that it brings back a few things that we have there too, um, and I also love each restaurant here. You can, go, you can go wrong with anything here. Others are seasoned veterans of the festival and know it very well. Here with Carrie Galdali. Kaylee, how long have you been going to the San Gennaro Festival? Uh, I have been coming on and off since I was in utero, I think. So pretty much my entire life, yeah. What's your favorite part of the festival if you had to pick just one? Oh, it's really tough. I'm going to say Aperol Spritzes and the atmosphere. How many years have you been coming to the San Gennaro Festival? Uh, let's see, since the uh, early 80s, let's say about 1980. So that's what, uh, what he is now, so long time. <laughs> Here with Coco Loco the Clown. <laughs> What's your favorite part of the festival, if you had to pick just one? Happiness and um, just uh, joyous feelings, you know, of, of, of an innocence of, of the children and all, you know. What's your favorite part of the festival? 
Oh, the music, the food, the women, I mean, forget about it. <laughs> and which part of New York are you from? Brooklyn. <laughs> With all the people coming, what does it mean to see post-COVID now that it, there's a lot more of this community coming oh, together? Man, it's, my God, it's so encouraging because two years ago, there was no Sunshine Hours, you know, COVID shut us down, but it's really, um, it, it just uh, inspires my spirit, you know, it boosts my spirit. It's great, it's great. While some have been coming for years and others have just started, it's clear that the festival means something to everyone in attendance. When we were kids, we would run around. We were four children. And so we're talking the 60s and 70s. So when we were kids, we would try to play the water games to come home with glasses. Then we realized four people playing were wasting three quarters. One person has to play or two people can play. One person aims for the clown, and one person wets everybody. <laughs> and you win. <laughs> so it brings us back to childhood and the experience of people having fun. So I love that, for me, just to see people being people having fun in a crazy world is everything. What does the festival mean? The festival means uh, a celebration of the patriot saint of Naples, where I am from. He stopped the volcano Vesuvius from continuing into the Naples borderline. And it uh, was brought over by my parents and everybody as their patron, and they kept celebrating it. Uh, along with the fanfare and the merriment that goes on and the eating and the music and the dancing and the socializing and so forth, it's still basically uh, a religious festival. So uh, the mass, uh, uh, Mass in honor of uh, St. Genao, who's the patron saint of the city of Naples, Italy. And this uh, feast was founded by those immigrants uh, 96 years ago. So that's important. And also the procession of the statue itself being paraded through these streets of Little Italy, which uh, continues on a great tradition that was started way back when. Honestly, like, it's my first time in the city. Like, I just moved here recently, so I don't think it means much to me right now, but I think going forward, I might make it an annual thing to come here every year. What does the festival mean to you? I'm going to show you. All about friendship. Um, it reminds me of my heritage, I think. Yeah. I think, no, it does, because it's, it's Little Italy, you know. I, I love having this, how New York is a place where you can have different countries within neighborhoods, and Little Italy shows that. Uh, it's a celebration of my heritage. My grandfather was off the boat from Naples, and um, been coming here ever since, and it's a great celebration of everything Italian-American, and it's a great way for me to reconnect to my culture and do it in the city that I call home. Well, what does it mean to me? Um, just a lot of cannoli and um, Italian food, street food. It's pretty good. Um, and a lot of people on uh, festival. Festival, yeah. It's all good and fun, yeah. That's what it means to me, I guess. Well, uh, it's, a, it's an Italian tradition because San Gennaro's was the saint that they, Italian immigrants prayed to uh, when they came to America in 1880, you know, and. Uh, it just suited their souls, and they relied on San Gennaro. San Gennaro is the patron saint of uh, Naples, and that's why every year they have this uh, celebration to honor San Gennaro's. We're heading towards the end of our very action-packed day, and this is just one of the 10 days of this festival. 
It's a time that means a lot to a lot of different people. But one thing's is certain, there will always be food, dancing, fun, and so much more at the San Gennaro Festival. For the morning wake-up call, I'm Jason Wyke. Welcome back, everybody. Jason's package definitely had a lot of fun and a lot of food. Uh, two things that I think everyone can readily enjoy, uh, which is nice to see. Uh, as we started with the morning show today for our uh, song segment of Everybody Talks, uh, we do have a lot of interviews. Uh, subsequently, we have a second interview coming up uh, where we have uh, some guests as well. Uh, so one major topic that has been going on across the nation, uh, and especially in recent weeks, has been the migrant crisis, uh, as it had a major impact throughout the United States. Uh, more locally, though, uh, in New York itself, um, orders itself by Governors Greg Abbott of Texas and Ron DeSantis of Florida have implemented acts to bus and fly asylum seekers to various places, including New York. Um, as a result of these implications, a Colombian woman seeking asylum had actually committed suicide on Sunday uh, while being in a New York shelter, according to National Public Radio. Here to talk about this issue and more is Javier Guzman, a lead organizer for the immigrant rights organization Make the Road NY, and Professor Patrick Young, uh, a director of organizing and strategy at the New York Immigration Coalition, as well as a special professor of immigration law here at Hofstra University. So thank you all both for, both for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, so Thank you. Oh, all good. Uh, but uh, so Professor Young will start off. Uh, so being a professor itself for immigration law, what are the humanitarian rights these asylum seekers hold when they're looking for asylum? Well, the United States for over half a century now has been a signatory to an international statute that allows people to apply for asylum if they have a well-founded fear of persecution. And so we're supposed to have a system in place that recognizes their humanity, protects them if they can prove that they would be persecuted if they're sent to their home country, and ensures due process, which means that they get a fair hearing, they get some type of legal assistance, and that they're able to pursue their claim. The problem that we had for the last five years is, is that system basically shut down. Uh, President Trump had put in a structure called Remain in Mexico, which prevented uh, refugees from actually applying for asylum. They can't apply in their home country. They actually have to come to the United States, which is not a good system in itself. They should be able to apply in the home country. But he shut the system down, which is why you're seeing uh, an influx of people this year, which has been a larger influx than we typically would have had before President Trump. And thank you so much for that. But uh, my question is for uh, Mr. Guzman. Um, as Professor Young did explain, we do have a process here in the United States. And based on your perspective, do you think maybe misconceptions from the media or from politicians have altered or influenced the public's understanding of asylum seekers and what they're actually coming here for? And do you think that could further complicate this process for them? Well, I think uh, I think it's uh, um, more than uh, misinformation. Is the uh, the violence? I mean, if you count what happens with the COVID nineteen all over the world, and also you know Latin America is is hard uh, hit by by, by COVID nineteen, and and then the economy and and the violence that that comes. I mean, you can see that here in New York, that uh, uh, the violence is, is at high pike now it's also in latin america so you can see that is many many 
other countries that they don't they don't have that many people seeking asylum now is you know filling the the border which you know is from coming from Venezuela in high high numbers from Peru from Colombia Ecuador and um and it is is incredible what is what is happening uh when the Texas governor and other governors start sending uh these immigrants actually uh make the road New York we we go to for authority to receive uh, uh, some of these um, asylum seekers, and it's, it's heartbreaking how uh, what happens is like like the lady that you were talking about, the Colombian lady, uh, she committed suicide because her family was was you know separated at the border. So again, for Professor Young, we uh, Mr. Guzman had spoken about the difficulties that they may have uh, that they may have experienced in their time over, and you gave us a rundown of the rights that they do hold. Now, no matter how streamlined this process may be, there are some things that very negatively affect these uh, these migrants as they're being moved from one place to the other so quickly. Can you give us a little insight on some of the difficulties that maybe you have seen or experienced when working with these people that the uh, migrants have faced state by state? Sure. In my work with the New York Immigration Coalition, I've seen this directly uh, with the arrivals in the Port Authority in New York City. Uh, the New York Immigration Coalition, we have almost 200 organizations that are members all around the state. And we began finding out in August that uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, was beginning to put people on buses and send them to New York. Now, you know, there are refugees who arrive in New York every day, long before Greg Abbott ever became the governor of Texas. But what we found in these situations is that these were individuals who, you know, he refers to them as illegal immigrants. But in fact, these are folks who had come to the border, uh, made a presentation with the Department of Homeland Security, were found that they were not a security threat to the United States, and that they had a credible claim of being persecuted in their home countries. And many of them are from Venezuela, some are from Colombia, and some are from Central America. Uh, and then what he did essentially is a publicity stunt in these buses that he's sending up here. He's The state is paying about $60,000 per busload of people that they're shipping. Uh, they recruited folks, and often under uh, false circumstances. In other words, they were told that uh, they were going to other places, but in fact they were being sent to New York. So we've had folks who showed up who thought they were going to Nashville, Tennessee, but in fact were going to New York. So the problem that we have with this is the level of deception, and we saw this particularly in the case of uh, Ron DeSantis's uh, shipment of two plane loads of Venezuelan uh, refugees to Martha's Vineyard. None of those individuals, and I think it's clear to anybody who's listening to this, none of those individuals said when they left Venezuela, I want to go to Martha's Vineyard. The odds are they had never even heard of Martha's Vineyard. So this was not about transporting people to a place that they would have wound up in anyway. This was really a situation in which people were deceived into going to someplace. They were told they were going to Boston by the recruiters who put them on the planes. Uh, they were told they were going to Boston. They wound up in Martha's Vineyard. Now, the people in Martha's Vineyard and the state of Massachusetts have tried to give a humanitarian response for these individuals, but we could also imagine if they hadn't, if they had shown up there and simply not had any place to go. Where would they have been taken care of? What would they have done? They would have been on an island in the Atlantic Ocean. And that's really what's troubling to us. 
we understand that people who are refugees and enter the United States are not always staying in Texas, not always staying in Arizona. But what's crucial to understand here is they do have places that they were going to, which is often where their families live or where they have community support from their home country. As you mentioned, uh, Massachusetts, I'm actually from Massachusetts. I'm from Boston, so I do know a lot about the area, and I do know that there are a lot of more resources available for those seeking asylum versus Martha's Vineyard. It's a very small, kind of remote area of Massachusetts. So kind of just to talk more about that, this question is for both Professor Young and Mr. Guzman. Um, If we are to view the actions of both Governors Abbott and Governors DeSantis, as they are uh, basically transporting people across the country to areas they, as you said, might not have agreed to or might not be aware of where they're going as a political stunt. Um, Can you talk about maybe the legality or the ethicality of their actions? What does this mean for them as people in positions of power? Well, uh, under federal law, if you deceive someone who is an immigrant and transport them across state lines, you're essentially trafficking the person. And there there are criminal penalties for that. And that's something that I think it's important to note that uh, the governor of California has asked the Justice Department to begin an investigation into. You know, if, if I say to people, well, we have a bus to New York. If you want to go to New York, it's a free bus ride. That's probably not illegal. It may not be good policy but it's probably not illegal. But if you tell people that they're going to Nashville, Tennessee, and they actually are going to New York, or if you tell them they're going to Boston and they're actually going to Martha's Vineyard, then that is uh, a form of trafficking, and that's illegal. And that's something I think that needs to be looked into very closely. I think the other thing that needs to be looked into is in the in these states themselves. You know, as I had pointed out, uh, Abbott is spending about $60,000 per busload of people that he's sending here. Now, if those folks were to buy Greyhound tickets, we, we would have no objection to the state of Texas making those tickets available to them. Those tickets run about 200 to $300 per person. They do not run to the $1,500 per person that's being paid to a private bus company by the state of Florida. And that's something I think that really defies any kind of reason or logic if the main purpose is simply to help people get to where they were eventually going. Uh, Mr. Guzman, do you have anything else to add for that? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's practically it's like uh, they, 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 they send in these people without they their knowledge where, where they go actually we find people that they used to go to Nevada and then they end up in New York and then we, we had to resettle them and you know try to connect with, with their own family so they can send them back where the the places they go and also is as uh, Patrick say it's like uh, we can that can be you know trigger you know a lawsuit against them because basically uh, they're doing the same thing that the polleros or the people who 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 try to get people in the United States are doing, which is moving people around, you know, and um, and and I think that is wrong and and it's very um, disturbing to see that politicians um, uh, basically are you know uh, playing with uh, human lives and, and it's, 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 it's not right. 
So just check back in. If you are now joining us, my name is Ronnie, and you are currently dialed in to the Thursday show for Hofstra's morning wake-up call. And today we have two very special guests, Professor Young, a Hofstra University special professor of immigration law and director of organizing and strategy at the New York Immigration Coalition, and Javier Guzman, lead organizer for immigrant rights of the organization Make the Road New York, based in Brentwood. Uh so obviously, with all of this going on, this is going to change the perspective of the mindset for some of these migrants heading into the United States. And, and this question is for both of our guests. Just traveling into the United States, what does this mean now with the messaging that's being sent where you're going into a country, you might not know the language, and then you're being sent to a completely different place from the place that you were intending to try to maybe settle in? So I was just curious, how does this completely alter the processes? There's so much unpredictability now. I think that the first thing to understand is is that these are folks who've endured very difficult passages before they ever got to the United States. In some cases, they passed for, through six or more countries to come here, but they knew where they were heading. And the problem we're seeing now is, is that people are winding up in places they never even intended to go. And this means that they're not going to get the support in those in the locations they wind up in that they would have received from their own communities, from their own families, uh, had they been going to the place that they originally intended to. And, that, and that's something that's very difficult. It also creates an additional level of mistrust because especially if we look closely at the Martha's Vineyard, case, you had a woman named Paula who was working for the state of Florida, who lied to individuals about what their situation would be like and even where they would wind up. In some cases, family members had traveled to Boston to receive them. And, you know, these are often families that are very difficult financial circumstances themselves. So taking time off from work, paying to travel to, to Boston can put a real resource drain on a family. So they're not going to get the same kind of support. At least in the short term, we're seeing that a lot of organizations has come out to help them. But if this continues for a substantial amount of time, we may see more and more people really going the, down the same direction uh, that the unfortunate woman did. Mr. Guzman, anything else to add on your take? Mr. Guzman? Yeah, just, just the fact that uh, someone left their own country and cross, uh, this is a very dangerous trip that they took, and it's very hard on children and women. Um, you know, the, the problems that we, that we see uh, when we receive them at the uh, Port Authority is, is people, like, they have a really, really, uh, um, you know, hard issues with mental health, and, and also it's the necessity to, to survive, um, and, and it's worse when they end up in a city that they don't even know and they don't have family to, you know, to help them out. And so the first thing that we get, that we do is is find shelter and then try to reconnect them with 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 you know with the family members or friends that they were going to. And uh, it's very hard on them, uh, basically on 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 the uh, mental health problems that we have. And Mr. Guzman, I know Professor Young mentioned a lot about the resources uh, that these migrants would need and things like that. I know you mentioned about the mental health aspects. So with everyone um, being brought over to these various states and just necessarily having the resources itself, um, how would the states necessarily make up for those la laps in resources, if anything? Mr. Guzman? Um, 
Yes, yes. The resources, I mean, the city of New York and the solidarity of people here in, 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 in New York City, uh, you know, it's become like a really, really good um, asset that we use. I mean, right now we're providing them with, you know, a few dollars to, you know, to, to eat and, and to travel. And also we provide them our phones and um, there is some other organizations that provide, uh, you know, health um, um, insurance, medic, uh, emergency Medicaid, and some other uh, resources that we can pull together with, with many other organizations. And um, yes, it's, it's, it's a hard hit for uh, our organizations. Cause, um, I mean, the, the funds are not endless, and, and, and it's, it's an influx uh, huge of people uh, seeking help. So for us, for the organizations, I mean, we provide as much as we can, but uh, it's, it's, it's really hard. So, for uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Guzman. This is uh, a last question for the both of you before we let you go. Uh, how can those who wish to support these migrant communities maybe help? Is there any way that they can get involved? Yeah, there's a lot of important ways that they could get involved. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the first things is to make sure that you say to elected officials that New York has been a welcoming place for immigrants for centuries and that immigrants really helped us get through the pandemic. We know that the people who were driving us, the people who were stocking our shelves, the people who were helping feed us were, many of them were immigrants in this in this state. And it's important that New York State continues its welcoming approach to immigrants. And that includes by providing them with emergency shelter, which is being done, uh, and providing them with the legal assistance that they're gonna need in order to pursue their asylum claims. You know, we, we've had refugees coming to Long Island for more than 100 years. My family came from Ireland fleeing oppression there. I, had, I grew up with neighbors who lost family members in the Holocaust and who came to escape that. I went to school with kids whose parents had been born in Poland but had to flee when the Russians took over their country. So this is not something that's new. And it's important that people really understand that it is our role if we're the descendants of refugees, and most of us are in one way or another, if we're the descendants of refugees to continue to stand up for the rights of refugees, and folks can go to the New York Immigration Coalition's website and there's information there on what they can do to help. On, um, on our part, I think uh, one of the most challenging uh, things is, is funds to help them, you know, legally. and, and we just have a few um, clinics that help, um, but it's not enough. I mean, this, uh, this overwhelming amount of uh, refugees coming um, take a toll in, in the resources that we have uh, when they're uh, seeking help to, fi to file their asylum application. Um, here in Long Island, we have an extra help with um, Sisters of St. Joseph. They have a clinic but uh, they don't have, you know, the capacity that, um, I mean, is need. And in the city, there's a few more organizations that help with the applications, but, uh, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming, and, and, and not every, every single asylum seeker is, 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 is getting help. But, um, I mean, uh, some people can, you know, donate money to organizations like Path just say, I mean, Make the Road New York is also a, a nonprofit organization that um, help uh, with those um, 
uh, with the legal situation, and many other organizations that they can just look it up and and, and donate money so so the asylum seekers get the help they need. Our very special guest today, Professor Young, Hofstra University Special Professor of Immigration and Director of Organizing and Strategy at the New York Immigration Law Coalition, and Javier Guzman, lead organizer for the immigrant rights organization Make the Road New York, based in Brentwood, who has been working closely with this influx of Latin American asylum seekers, particularly from Venezuela and Colombia. Obviously, we're coming towards the end of our segment. We'll start uh, with, with, this is for both, but we'll start with uh, Mr. Guzman. Is there just any other further information you would like our listeners to know right now? Yeah, whoever wants to be a, a, you know, a volunteer and go with us to, to Port Authority to receive the asylum seekers, check for themselves, uh, I mean, um, what is going on, they can go into maketheroadnewyork.org and you can, you know, uh, offer you as a, as a volunteer, and they can go with us and try to help these people. And also, as I said before, you can donate, not only to our organization, but many other organizations that are, you know, pulling resources together to help them out. I just want to add, and, uh, you know, I know we've said a lot, but I think we have to just keep in mind that what DeSantis and Abbott are doing are simply inhuman. They need to stop using these poor, vulnerable people as pawns to get political attention. We understand that politicians need to stir up their bases, but using people who are the most vulnerable is a very, very cruel and inhumane way to go about politics. Again, it, it, it's really in this time particularly sad to see that this has become a hotbed political issue. Uh, and I want to thank both of you so much for your, contribu- for your contributions to our community and speaking up for people that typically aren't really given a voice at the table. So thank you again both so much for your time and for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Enjoying the show? Make sure to tune in every weekday from 8 to 9 a.m. for some more Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Only on 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. This week after a mass stranding, 200 whales have died with only 35 surviving as a pod of pilot whales were found stranded Wednesday along a beach off the coast of Tasmania. So rescue efforts are still underway to save the remaining whales. And Brendan Clark of the Tasmania Parks and Wildlife Service have claimed, quote, we are primarily focused this morning on really getting into that rescue operation and getting the whales released, end quote. That was in a statement to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation on Thursday. This is there is a heavy concern that the whales may rebeach themselves, so they will continue to monitor that. And officially, this is the second mass stranding of whales in Tasmania this week, as over a dozen sperm whales were found dead on another beach. So this, as we were talking about the environment, is a major tragedy, and I wanted to get you guys' thoughts on it before we break. It's a little confusing because it, it it's reminiscent almost of those uh those situations where you see the big fish killed in, in certain lakes that a, a lot of fish just end up you know floating to the top they have died and the, you know the subsequent investigation takes a while to figure out what is it you know now that's that's causing these fish uh you know to to die with that it's something within their environment that you know they maybe it's a you know it's an ailment something going around it's something that although it doesn't make any sense, it makes more sense than what's happening right now. It's, it's really difficult to try to wrap your head around why these whales are just, you know, so many of them are happening you know, to be beaching. If one, if, you know, if, if it happens to one, okay, you know, this is a, a, an isolated incident. But to see this many 
in you know, this close succession. It's it's a little it's interesting to think about. I I think we can kind of match it a little bit to our, all our topics and discussion we've had today in terms of our climate and all that. I think a lot of it has to do, of course, with warming sea levels going up, where their habitats can go, at least for feeding grounds. Because if you don't have enough area to go and get your food and all your fish are going away and going to warmer waters, that's where they're going to get found over there, if anything else. That's certainly a big deal. Jason, I know you had something. I was just curious. So obviously in the South Pacific right now, uh, Japan is being slammed by one of the worst typhoons that they've had in recent history. So I was curious, as we're talking about these extreme weather patterns that we're seeing as a result of climate change, maybe that has something to do with it. Because again, this is phenomena that I'm sure shakes up not just the area around Japan, but as you approach Australia in that general area, I'm curious if maybe this pattern that they weren't used to kind of threw them off. And that's why so many of them ended up in one area. But again, it's just so unfortunate to see that not only are humans who we are personally responsible for what we've done to this planet, but the animals that are unfortunately kind of the scapegoats of our own actions. I completely agree. It is a very confusing thing, as Ronnie mentioned and as Jason has mentioned before. It is a very confusing thing to look at. I do know that in my quick research this morning that marine biologists, whale strandings are some of the most confusing things for them as well. They're still trying to figure out the logistics, the reasons behind why it happens, because it is something that you do see very frequently. And in recent years, it has been on an uptick. <clears throat> Actually, in Tasmania in 2020, that was the largest Stranding, uh, be, stranding of whales in Tasmania's history back in 2020. And to see this happen again in 2022, there is something happening happening in the waters, and we are very concerned about what it is. Very, very confusing, because, like I said, to have it happen once is already interesting enough, and now there's an investigation trying to figure out what's going on. But then to see it happen again in such large scale again in, in a little over two years, maybe two and a half years, it, ma it makes you think, what is it that's happening? This is not an isolated incident. There's definitely something going on. We just don't know what. Certainly something to keep an eye out for, if anything else. So we'll have that to look out otherwise. Uh, nevertheless, how are we feeling this week? Did, did we do anything fun this week? Are you gearing up for anything fun? I know I got my friend's birthday this weekend. I'm going upstate, so we're going to have a fun time there. Anything to look forward to? I think this whole week has just been really gearing up for today. Today was today was a big day, a lot of interviews, a lot of very important people. But you know, it's a it's a it's a little weight off the trail. now that we're taking care of it. And it was a, I think it was a great show. Other than that, I mean, I don't know. The the week's pretty uh pretty up in the air. Um yeah, I agree. I feel like this whole week was building up to today. We did have a lot of amazing interviews. I'd just like to thank all of our guests again for being on the show. Um. On top of that, I don't know, something I'm looking forward to. Sunday, I will be doing the color commentary for the women's soccer game at noon if anyone wants to hear my voice for longer. As a matter of fact, tonight, Hofstra University is playing the Hampton Pirates. I will also be on color, so we have some representation for morning wake-up in the sports department. So if you want to listen to some fun, exciting action on the pitch, make sure to tune in. That's the uh, that's the new uh, members for the CAA, right? Because it's uh, Stony Brook, Hampton, and NCAT. Is that? Uh, North Carolina AT and Monmouth. Monmouth, yes, that's it. All right, good. Good to see we get to play Stony Brook more than we have to, which is nice. Uh, good for some rivalry spots. Otherwise, we are going to leave you all. I hope we enjoyed all the great interviews today. Again, special thanks to all of our guests uh, that have come on the show. Uh, we will see you next Thursday. And as a uh, tribute to the whales out there, uh, we are going to go beyond the sea uh, for our closing spot. Uh, but otherwise, we will see you all next Thursday. Have a good one. Be well. And we'll see you around. <laughs>